Mikey, that song is called Acid and Fapping. Let's play one more. Um, <clears throat> last couple of weeks, we marked the anniversary of the bombing of a church. Killed. Killed four young girls as a result of racism. 
that loose in that moment. Um, still here with us. So, guess what? There's a composition called Alabama taking note of what Dark, dark. Do we get over it? Get over it. we go. Number of killers 
And the choir kept singing of freedom On Birmingham Sunday A noise shook the ground And people all over the earth turned around For no one recalled a more cowardly sound And the choir kept singing was Joan Baez, of course, with a song that no matter how many times I hear it, touches you. Thank you. 
So there it is on a Saturday morning, John Coltrane's version of Alabama, coupled with Joan Baez's Birmingham Sunday. Good feeling back. Children are. Yeah, your kid has enough to eat. Short while there, kids had enough. Bad for the economy. Republicans don't like it. They're not alone. Okay, well, this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. 
And you might ask what Birmingham Sunday has to do with labor and love. Very basic way that people earn their living. Very basic days they go through. What is your day like? What is your work day like? That's one-third of your life. What is it like? Could it be better? Could it be really better? Well then, maybe it's time to organize. As we say, you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is, on the menu. Okay, let's take a little break here and come back on the other side. Who was Malcolm X? Good question. One uh, leftist critic, I guess a critic, said that everyone in America should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. It'd be required reading for everybody, even for Ron DeSantis. Because the autobiography of Malcolm X puts Malcolm squarely center of the black experience. It is something that everyone should know about, every American citizen. So, street hustler, prophet, teacher, agitator, you name it, hear about who was. How did one man go from petty criminal to becoming a global voice against racism? He's one of the most prominent Muslims in modern history and a symbol of black liberation who has inspired generations. A gangster, a preacher, and a revolutionary 
this is the extraordinary journey of Malcolm X. Malcolm X was born in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. His parents, Earl and Louise Little, were followers of the Pan-African activist Marcus Garvey. As a result, their family was subjected to constant harassment by the Ku Klux Klan, who burned down their home when Malcolm was just four years old. The family moved to Michigan, where they were threatened by the Black Legion, an offshoot of the KKK. Four of Malcolm's uncles were also murdered by white racists. Malcolm's father died when he was six. The incident was officially ruled a streetcar accident, although his mother believed he had ultimately been murdered by the Black Legion. When Malcolm was 13, his mother was committed to a mental institution. Her children were split up and sent to different foster homes. Malcolm was an excellent student, but dropped out of school after a white teacher told him it was unrealistic for a young black boy to have aspirations of being a lawyer. After a few years in Michigan and Boston, he moved to Harlem at the age of 18, where he was involved in gambling, robbery, drug dealing, and pimping. At the age of 21, after committing a string of robberies with a small gang in Boston, Malcolm was arrested and sentenced to 8 to 10 years at Charlestown State Prison. Incarceration was the beginning of Malcolm's transformation. While in prison, his siblings began writing to him about the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. The Nation of Islam promoted black independence and rejected the notion of the superiority of white people. Instead, Elijah Muhammad taught his followers a form of separatism from whites, who were actually considered devils, inferior to black people who were the original inhabitants of Earth. Malcolm, initially hostile to the idea of any religion, eventually became a member of the nation. He read books constantly and began writing regularly to Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad's followers were taught to abandon their given family names as they were actually the names of former slave owners. So Malcolm Little became Malcolm X. After being paroled, Malcolm visited Elijah Muhammad in Chicago. In June the next year, he was named Assistant Minister of the Nation of Islam's Temple No. 1 in Detroit. He later established Boston's Temple No. 11 and expanded Temple No. 12 in Philadelphia. And those of you who think that you perhaps came here to hear us tell you to turn the other cheek to the brutality of the white man, I say again, you came to the wrong place. Finally, he was selected to lead Temple No. 7 in Harlem, where he was responsible for a huge surge in membership. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek. We don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the South, and we don't teach you to turn the other cheek in the North. We teach you to obey the law. We teach you to carry yourselves in, in a respectable way. But at the same time, we teach you that anyone who puts his hand on you, do your best to see that he doesn't put it on anybody else. The FBI now had him under surveillance due to his sudden profile as the nation's rising star. Malcolm's rise to national prominence happened in 1957, when he intervened at a police station to arrange for medical assistance and legal help for members of the nation who had been beaten and arrested by New York police. The crowd of protesters outside grew to almost 4,000. Witnessing Malcolm's control of the crowd shook the New York Police Department. Within weeks, they had him under surveillance and officially began infiltrating the nation. In 1958, Malcolm married his wife Betty, with whom he would have six daughters. Malcolm's profile continued to grow via print and television appearances, and he began to gain international exposure. Who is it that controls the prostitution in Harlem? It's the white man. Who controls the large sale of whiskey and wine? It's the white man. Who gives you the deck of cards and the dice that you use to gamble with? It's the white man. And after he sell them to you, he catch you with them and put you in jail for using them. He was deeply critical of the growing civil rights movement and its leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, who preached integration. 
That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy. Or Luther King is just the 20th century, or modern Uncle Tom, or a religious Uncle Tom, who is doing the same thing today. To Malcolm's message was being heard louder than ever, but his relationship with the man who had transformed his life was about to fracture. Tensions were growing within the nation over the amount of attention Malcolm was receiving compared to his mentor, Elijah Muhammad. An unprovoked raid on a Nation of Islam mosque by police in Los Angeles led to one member being paralyzed and another being killed. No charges were laid against the police. The white man believes you when you go to him with that old sweet talk, because you've been sweet talking him ever since he brought you here. Stop sweet talking. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how, what kind of hell you've been catching, and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Malcolm was reportedly stunned by Elijah Muhammad's refusal to allow any form of response or retaliation for the incident. The two also disagreed over Malcolm's desire to begin working with civil rights organizations, black politicians, and other religious organizations. Then, suddenly... Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded. Malcolm's response to the Kennedy assassination led to him being officially silenced for 90 days. Malcolm X, you were involved in a controversy some months ago with your leader. Is that over? Well, I've been, I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted? And, yes. And, what did you say, and, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. In March of 1964, Malcolm publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so. Then came a bombshell. Well, in reality, I never even left the Muslim movement. They put me out. And they put me out because of what I knew. And what I knew was told to me by Mr. Muhammad's son, uh, Wallace Muhammad himself. They put me out and they put him out. Who is the father of all of these various children whom you have enumerated? Uh, the first one to tell me who the father was was Wallace Muhammad, and he told me that the father was Elijah Muhammad himself. One of and how many of these illegitimate children did he father with the sisters? Well, he made uh, six sisters pregnant. They all had children. Two of those six had two children. I am told that there is a seventh sister who is supposed to be in Mexico right now, and she's supposed to be having a child by him. Are you not, perhaps, afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh, yes. I probably am a dead man already. After splitting from the nation, Malcolm began learning the tenets and practices of Sunni Islam. He founded the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, a religious organization, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity, a non-religious group promoting Pan-Africanism. He had softened his position on Martin Luther King, who he met only once in person. And later the same year, he performed Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. This was to be yet another transformative experience for him. When I was in on the pilgrimage, 
I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white and with Muslims who themselves would be classified as white in America. But these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white. They looked upon themselves as human beings, as part of the human family, and therefore they looked upon all other segments of the human family as part of that same family. Now, uh, they had a different look or a different air or a different attitude than that which is uh, reflected in the uh, attitude of the man in America who calls himself white. So I said that if uh, Islam had done this, done that for them, perhaps if the white man in America would study Islam, perhaps they could do the same thing for him. After Mecca, Malcolm made two trips to Africa, meeting officials and speaking on radio and television across the continent. In Cairo, he attended the second meeting of the Organization of African Unity and met Africa's most high-profile leaders, including Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, and Ahmed Ben Bella of Algeria, who all offered him official positions in their respective governments. He met with Fidel Castro and was one of the first African-American leaders to meet the newly created Palestinian Liberation Organization and was one of the pioneers of a tradition of black Palestinian solidarity that would be continued by the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter movement. A common misconception about Malcolm's philosophical evolution is that his process of turning to Sunni Islam softened his political positions. While it's true that Malcolm abandoned some of the nation's more extreme separatist positions on race, he remained a staunch black nationalist. I think what a lot of people are interested in, Malcolm, is whether this experience has made you feel that that your feelings have changed, that uh, that the animosity you have expressed in the past toward all fights. And there's one thing that I want to make clear. No matter how much respect, no matter how much uh, uh, recognition whites show toward me, as far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. If anything, Malcolm's travel had led him to globalize his perspective, seeing black liberation as something beyond the United States, and as something that was intimately tied to struggles for independence across the third world. It has remained a domestic problem. It has remained within the jurisdiction of the United States. And it has, and as such, it has been impossible for the Afro-Americans or American Negroes to try and enlist the support of other dark-skinned uh, people who are being oppressed the world over in, in that struggle. And the only way this can be done is by internationalizing the problem. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's, who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. The Nation of Islam had not taken Malcolm's exit and public criticism of Elijah Muhammad's misconduct lightly. His family was repeatedly threatened, their car was bombed, and FBI surveillance records show that law enforcement was aware that elements within the nation were openly discussing his death. Then his house was burned down. On February 21, 1965, Malcolm was addressing the Organization of Afro-American Unity in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom. He was shot 21 times. Three Nation of Islam members were tried and convicted of the murder, but questions remained. At the time of his death, Malcolm was under surveillance by both the NYPD and the FBI's COINTELPRO operation. For many, there is simply no doubt that one or both organizations had a hand in his assassination. 
Malcolm's legacy went on to be preserved in hip-hop, film and literature. Most importantly, his own autobiography, which continues to be celebrated and was named one of the 10 most influential non-fiction books of the 20th century. His politics continue to inspire generations of activism against racism and imperialism worldwide. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you. Malcolm's funeral was held in Harlem. Some estimate that up to 30,000 people attended. Actor and activist Ozzy Davis delivered the eulogy. Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes, extinguished now and gone from us forever. Many will ask what Harlem finds to honor in this stormy, controversial, and bold young captain, and we will smile. Many will say, turn away, away from this man, for he is not a man, but a demon, a monster, a subverter, and an enemy of the black man. And we will answer and say unto them, Did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people, and in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. What we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which, after the winter of discontent, will come forth again to meet us, and we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince who did not hesitate to die because he loved us so. You now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. <laughs> Malcolm X, um, <clears throat> the touching eulogy by Ozzie Davis. I think it's important to emphasize, to re-emphasize, as they did in this video, TRT is the name of the company. Um, <clears throat> That Malcolm X was always first and foremost a black national. Um, he was helped by socialists. Was giving, was able to use their facilities to give his speeches. A lot of his work was republished afterward by socialists, most of whom were white. He did make some statements. When you see a capitalist, you see a bloodsucker, he said. Once. 
<clears throat> a lot of people thought he was on the road to becoming a socialist. Whether he did or not, or was or not, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone ever, anything ever, ever was more important to him than black national liberation of black people. I think he saw a way that that liberation struggle could and should be extended to everyone in the world who suffers from colonialism. But did he ever stop being a black nationalist? No. Another black leader who died... Jim Brown, football player who also worked to liberate, was an important voice black freedom struggle. He is known as one of the greatest football players of all time. He was also an actor and civil rights activist. James Brown has more on his legacy. Brown takes the ball and he was one of the greatest football the players to step Covers foot on the gridiron, but his talents transcended sports. Jim Brown was born in 1936 in segregated Georgia. When Jimmy Brown breaks loose for his he rose to fame as a football and lacrosse standout at Syracuse. ESPN recently called him the greatest college football player ever. Number 32, Jimmy Brown. Brown went on to play nine seasons in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns. He led the league in rushing for eight of those and was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1971. From professional footballers. At the top of his career, Brown quit the NFL at the age of 30 to pursue acting. He starred in dozens of films, including movies like The Dirty Dozen and Any Given Sunday, where he shared the screen with Al Pacino. Never had him. How you gonna lose him? Tonight, Brown also being remembered for his political activism during the civil rights movement and the decades that followed. In the 1980s, Brown founded the Amer I Can Foundation, which teaches life skills to at-risk youth. He faced his own share of legal issues, serving time in prison in 2002 for charges related to a domestic violence dispute. That's the greatness in the building. Still, his legacy means he was revered by this generation of superstar athletes. Jim Brown was 87 years old. He was indeed one of the greatest ever athletes in any sport. Chanel? James Brown, thank you. Tyler Dragon joins me now with more on this. He is an NFL reporter at USA Today. Thanks so much for making time. Thanks for having me on. I want to start with asking you about Brown's legacy in the NFL. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, Jim Brown is not only just one of the best football players of all time, he's one of the best athletes in the history of sports. By the time he retired, he was the NFL's rushing champion, uh, multiple-time MVP, um, an NFL champion with the uh, Cleveland Browns, the Browns' only uh, uh, championship. And, you know, he's just one of the best running backs of all time, if not the best. A lot of players, past and present, look up to him, watch his highlight films, watch the way he played the game. He was one of the uh, most fiercest uh, runners of the football 
in pro football history, his ability, not only his speed, but his power. People were afraid to tackle <laughs> Jim Brown in his heyday. And then just his legacy off the field, as you uh, alluded to in the segment, you know, he was a social justice pioneer. He's a civil rights activist. So he's going to have an everlasting legacy, not only on the football field, but off the football field and just his overall impact. Is there a more decorated player than Jim Brown in league history? That's a good question. You can make the case that he's the most decorated player of all time in mm -hmm. the NFL, on and off the field. You can go with, you know, the Jerry Rices of the world, the Tom Brady's, the Joe Montana's. But Jim Brown is definitely up there, a pro football Hall of Famer. There's pro football Hall of Famers, and then there's Hall of Famers that stand out above the rest. And mm -hmm. Jim Brown is definitely a Hall of Famer that stands out above the rest. And I wonder if you can speak quickly, Tyler, about reaction that we're seeing online. What are people saying? Yeah, a lot of people are just sharing their condolences to Jim Brown's family, his friends and loved ones. A lot of uh, NFL organizations are uh, posting uh, messages, heartfelt messages on social media and on their team website. So it's going to be felt around the NFL. I would not be surprised if the Cleveland Browns did something to memorialize Jim Brown uh, this coming season, maybe a decal on the, their helmet or mm -hmm. something of that source. But he's definitely going to be missed. Truly an icon and an NFL legend. Tyler Dragon, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Have a great night. You as well. Okay, Jim Brown uh, recently <clears throat> was one of the characters. Jim Brown was a character in a play um, film called One Night in Miami where he meets with um, Muhammad Ali, who's just defeated uh, Sonny Liston for the championship, heavyweight championship. Sam Cooke, songwriter. Um, Jim Brown and Malcolm X meet together and talk and share their ideas. It's a situation that never really happened. But it's interesting. And at the very beginning of the film, Jim Brown goes back to Georgia to uh, meet his old coach. And they sit together and the coach, high school coach, maybe college coach, they sit together and they talk and very friendly, supportive way. And the coach gets up and he says, uh, oh, can I get you something to drink? And Brown said, no, just water. And the coach goes into the house and Jim Brown follows him into the house. And the coach says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't come in here. We don't let Negroes in our, in our house. Just to let Brown know where and who he coach was. Okay, let's get on now. We've got some 
contemporary things going on. Hollywood faces larger work stoppage as actors threaten to strike alongside writers. See if we can get this one. The Actors Union, SAG AFTRA, has called for a strike authorization vote. Television, movie, and streaming show writers began striking May 2nd. Getting Got Tom Hanks talking, but no sound. Throw a tidy upper. What's for supper? Money stretcher, run and fetcher. Cake baker, back acre, early waker, bed maker, breakfast maker, lunch maker, tea maker, sandwich maker. Lady, what do you do all day? Lady, it's your only life. When they ask you, what do you say? Oh, I don't work. I'm nothing but a housewife. Um, this is a song I've recently learned. I love it. It's a ballad uh, about a girl who's wagered to uh, go up the hill and come down a virgin. Her lover's waiting up at the top. It's not a very common ballad in this country.
Guild members already on the picket line, putting even more pressure on studios and networks. The ongoing writer's strike has halted production on movies and scripted series like Stranger Things on Netflix, Apple TV's Severance, and Showtime's Yellow Jackets. Late night TV shows have already gone dark. For more on the strike and what's at stake, I'm joined by two television writers and Writers Guild members, Sal Gentile and Jeannie Fan Wong. Thank you both for being with us. And Jeannie, we'll start with you. This is day 17 of the strike. How are you and other writers faring? And remind us of what it is that you're demanding. We're basically asking for less than 2% of profits that they make from writer content. Um, when it comes down to it and sustainable wages to able to have a career in um, entertainment is what we're asking for and I was just out on the picket line this morning and we felt really good with morale and all of us are I drove in had a two-hour commute because I'm house sitting out of town it just felt really good morale just to see everyone and especially when people drop off food it's always nice when people feed the writers. Virginia, streaming has dramatically transformed the industry this is a prolific era in American entertainment. One would think that compensation would reflect that. Why hasn't it? There's a huge influence of uh, the tech industry on streaming and the way that uh, writers are being compensated. So I'm both a television and a new feature writer. And in television, our employment were paid weekly, and the average number of weeks that a writer is working in a room has gone down a lot. And oftentimes, writers are forced to stretch um, the money that they make in such a short amount of time over a longer time. And even in some writers, um, some contracts with options, exclusivity, sometimes writers are held and they can't even find other work. And in feature writing, there's just um, a lot that we're asking for uh, more than a one-step deal because there's a lot of free work <laughs> and I know that sounds insane but there's a lot of uh, just free labor that's being asked that's sort of like a courtesy and whatnot and so basically a lot of the, the tech industry has this like devalued ask for more work sometimes free work for less money and asking writers to stretch our salaries over a long time. Hmm. And Sal, you work in late night. That's a high-pressure job, long hours. You have to be funny every day. You can't necessarily wait for the muse to strike. How have the changes in the industry that Jeannie's talking about, how has that affected the work that you and your colleagues do? Well, so I'm incredibly lucky because my show is on a broadcast network, and so we benefit from protections that the Guild has fought for and collectively bargained for over many years. We benefit from protections such as minimum pay and residuals for the reuse of our material. And that makes it possible for writers to have a livable career and to go from project to project. And the fear is that, because we all know streaming is here, and not only is it here, but it will continue to be the future, that will go away for all writers across the Guild, but especially and particularly for late night and comedy variety writers, because uh, studios have essentially proposed uh, tr taking all of those protections for late-night writers and comedy variety writers away. And as you mentioned, it's a high-pressure job. You have to respond to the news every single day and write jokes about the news every single day. And it's really hard to do that without the security, at least some minimum level of uh, guarantee about what your contract is going to say. And the studios would like in the future, if these shows are exclusively on streaming, to pay writers not a minimum, 
uh, not the residuals, but to pay a day rate, uh, which would not make it a sustainable career for anybody. And so because I love the type of writing I do, I love late night writing, I love writing jokes about the news, uh, I want to I make sure it remains a sustainable career both for myself and my colleagues and for people who come after us because there's going to be plenty more you know, insane news for the, the shows to make fun of. Sal, a sticking point in the, the writer's strike has to do with artificial intelligence. AI is already being used in, in entertainment writing. What are some of the concerns uh, that you and your colleagues have? Yeah, so I want to establish one thing, which is that writers are not naive about technology. We know that AI is here, and we know that it's the future, and we want to make sure that we can use it as a tool creatively in the creative process rather than being replaced by it. And so I think, for example, the nightmare scenario, the fear is that studios will use AI to generate really bad scripts, or let's say in my case, really bad uh, jokes about the news. And then they'll bring in a writer at a much lower rate with many fewer writers in a room to improve a bad script generated by AI and make it good enough to use on television or in film. And so, uh, we want to just we just want basic protections in place to make sure that they can't do that. We're not saying AI is going to go away. We're simply saying let's put basic protections in place that will make sure it doesn't replace us, but that we can use the technology as part of the creative process. And we should say we reached out to the group that's representing the studios to participate in this discussion, and they said they don't speak on the record about ongoing negotiations. But Jeannie, I will tell you, I spoke with a studio executive who made the point that. The studios right now can literally afford to wait out this strike because they are in a cost-cutting mode right now, and this work stoppage for them is a savings. These are temporary savings. How long are you prepared to stay out in the picket line? I prepare to stay out as long as it takes because the fight for to have a sustainable career, it's a, an existential fight um, for writers to be able to make a living. And it's also a fight for a lot of working class and middle class writers. Um, we have a robust strike fund. Um, I have applied to it just in case, and I'll stay out here as long as I need to. And as you know, people are sending food and it's been great to march and pick it with other unions. So how do you see it? And what would it mean if SAG-AFTRA, if the performers union, if the directors union uh, joined this effort? Uh, the cross-union solidarity has been incredible on the picket lines. We've been joined by our friends and colleagues from unions across the industry. And as you noted, SAG has already called for a strike authorization vote because everybody recognizes that this is an existential moment for the industry at large. The streaming era has broken the profit-sharing model that already existed, that was in place. It was imperfect, but it was there. Make sure that the people who work in this industry can sustain a livable career, and it's not an industry just for the lucky few, and but for everybody across all of these unions and guilds. And so everybody recognizes that, and I, I, I've you know, I've, I've felt the same incredible energy on the picket lines. I know everybody, as much as we love writing and as much as we want to get back to our jobs as writers, everybody is committed to this cause and seeing it through across all of the sister unions that have joined us on the picket line. Sal Gentile and Jeannie Fan Wong, thank you both for sharing your perspectives with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so there's the writer's strike. Into a couple of labor history in two, and then it's time for us to go. But before we do that, I want to pay homage to one of our sponsors.
people at San Jalisco on 20th and South Van Ness. Como México, no hay dos. Como San Jalisco, tampoco. Over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? The ultimate in birria? Best salsa and chips in town, brought to you before you order. Oh, how about your favorite vegetarian omelets? Burritos and tacos. They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. So please go and visit the people who sponsor this show and get a great meal. Besides helping. Okay, so this is the B, and it's time for us to get on, but let's listen to CLRJ. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day that black author and Marxist theorist C.L.R. James passed away. James was born in Trinidad, at the time a Caribbean colony that was part of the British Empire. His father was a school teacher. James became a leading intellectual on the subject of black liberation. His most famous work, The Black Jacobins, tells the story of the 1791 Haitian Revolution, when enslaved black Haitians successfully overthrew French colonial rule. James was a frequent contributor to Labor Action, a Marxist journal produced in New York from 1940 to 1958. He wrote about the struggles of black workers. He often penned fiery language. For example, in 1941, James wrote an article imploring black workers not to cross the picket line during a strike against the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. Ford had a reputation of hiring black workers at a time when many employers discriminated in their employment practices. But James warned his readers that the Ford company was no friend to the worker and that the company was attempting to use race to keep its workforce divided. James wrote, quote, Ford is one of the most dangerous enemies of labor who exist in this country. This enemy of society has been laying a train of race hatred in Detroit and is now about to touch it off. The organized working class movement and the Negroes will have to fight hard and long to check and frustrate and defeat this sinister plot. This will be no easy fight. In other articles, James also used his pen to call out labor unions for not including black workers and to call for the unification of black and white workers in their struggle. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1979. That was the day we lost one of the giants of the U.S. labor movement, A. Philip Randolph. 
A. Philip Randolph spent his life working for black workers and the cause of labor. He organized the first national black union to be recognized by the American Federation of Labor, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The fight for union recognition took 12 years, and the porters signed their first contract in 1937. Randolph went on to lead the effort to desegregate war industries and armed services during and after World War II. He was one of the leading organizers of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, one of the most memorable actions of the Civil Rights Movement. He also worked tirelessly to break down discrimination within the labor movement. He was elected the first black vice president of the AFL-CIO in 1955. Randolph's dedication to the cause of labor was summed up when he said, quote, the essence of trade unionism is social uplift. The labor movement has been the haven for the dispossessed, the despised, the neglected, the downtrodden, the poor. But Randolph also consistently declared that no movement for social justice can be complete unless it is also inclusive. While organizing for the desegregation of the war industries during World War II, Phillips argued, quote, equality is the heart and essence of democracy, freedom and justice, equality of opportunity in industry, in labor unions, schools and colleges, government, politics, and before the law. There must be no dual standard of justice, no dual rights, privileges, duties, or responsibilities of citizenship. No dual forms of freedom. Labor history and two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society. A. Philip Randolph and C.L.R. James. Liberation. This is the B. Signing off. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, around the menu, and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Have a good week and good work. Please stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. Flat Black Plastic. Dot Walker. next week.
on YouTube. If you want to hear the rest of that, you can go download that this Friday. This shit ain't You ain't got it. You ain't got it, motherfucker. Suckers be coming up to me on some bullshit. Talking about they want to freestyle and shit. Breath stinking like a motherfucker. Spitting and shit. Other motherfuckers want to stand next to me and just hang out. I never did that shit when I wanted to get on. All I did was give a motherfucker a pound, a compliment. And I was out, told him my name. Peace. Some protection. 
I thought by now that you had learned your lesson of stressing points and slamming all the joints you call the real shit, correct shit. You know the bust the way you feel shit, baby. I still don't think you understand. You lose the game, we get more props than Dan. Rather, and it don't matter, cause when you flex, you're weak. So I'ma step just to speak about the counterfeit. Unlegit type of people, those cellophane ones, the ones that you can see through it. Poetic justice, cause I'm mad with the path. So precise, my insight will take flight in the night and in the daytime. Cause I don't come up with corny rhymes. I'm too devoted to the concept of getting mine. So here's the deal, like Shaquille O'Neal. If you don't know what you're doing, how the hell can you be real? <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. You get the message, you've got to rumble sometimes. It's getting hectic, emotions run deep. As times run out, solutions, it's time to find some out. So according to me, suckers are born. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to motherfucking Old Soul Radio. I am your host, Dolomite 12. And I'm your host, Jai Ushijima. Jai Ushijima. You sound a lot like my boy, Professor. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I like to DJ and uh, and and smoke weed. Dude, I think these mics are like stronger now. Yeah, these are good mics. What the fuck? Shit's just got better at Old Soul Radio. It's tight. These are good mics and your mic. My name is Mike. Yeah. My nickname is Good Mike too, because compared to the other mics, there's Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. I'm just I'm just Good Mike. You You're know? just Good Mike. Yeah. We have two guests here, three guests here in the house tonight. We got more coming along the way. Uh huh. Tell us who the ge- uh, guest, please state your name. My name is, uh, <laughs> these right. mics are strong. Yeah, I don't even have these mics. My name is, uh, Sky Dow. I'm a DJ from K-Sun Radio up north by Sonoma Valley. Hey, welcome back, Sky. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be back, guys. Thank you, thank you. No problem. What's up, I'm Roland. Spliff City. Or Society. <laughs> <laughs> wow, these are really strong mics. I get closer, I can hear myself breathing. Right. We don't, have to, we don't have to say talking to the mic every time now. I know that's so that's cool. Not, yeah, it's like a, it's like a new a new day. My, a new day. Mine are so bad. I gotta get so close. Like I'm like, gotta, like touching it. What's your name? Sir, my name is Sam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like to rap. Yeah. You gonna rap for us tonight, later, Sam? Ask. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you guys have in store for your guests tonight? Tonight. Um, I got a series of questions. I wrote down yeah. a lot of questions to do with uh, with women because we had three women guests coming in tonight, and so we're gonna kind of go back oh, and okay. forth with like a, a good conversational piece. Because here at Old Soul Radio, I kind of feel like there's always a lot of, of a lot of people of the penis variety. You know, just a lot of dudes. That, are means, that means here. that means people with cocks. That's okay yes. though. People can like <laughs> just hanging out with people with cocks. You know, no no shade. <laughs> The point is, the point we're trying to make is we we want more of a female perspective in the conversation. That's always good. That's always good. Yeah. I, I share uh, a case on radio up north, Sonoma State. Uh, my co-host Simone. So I get the, I get the best of both worlds. She kind of handles her point of view, and we we have a uh, guests, and we try to mix it up as much as possible. So it's nice. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's like you know respect for the listener too, so the listener doesn't feel like they have to be a dude or definitely you know, it it helps it helps someone connect uh, a lot more. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm so pumped about these mics right now. I'm sorry. I like tripping because I'm like, I've never, yeah. I've never been this far and been able to talk to it. I'm jealous of you guys, honestly. <laughs> my my studio is falling apart so bad. It's like from 65. It's huge, but it's just like, it's not cutting it right now. What's not cutting it? My, my, stu- like, uh, my studio, like my radio station up north is just, it's pretty bad. Like uh, our sound box is not doing well. Um, our mics don't work very well. Our everything's not working. There's no money. That sounds dope. Sounds like a place to be. It's cool though. I mean, I feel like you'll, I feel like you'll get this. You'll get the upgrade eventually. This is like literally we've been doing this <laughs> since fucking. We've been doing this, uh, we've been doing this show for like 38 years now. Pretty much. Are you sure? I thought it was like 42, but I could be wrong. I could 38 have 38 last May. <laughs> the 80s got me, guys. They got me. I remember in the 80s, I was alive, and, um, <laughs> and I used to eat donuts. I remember life. With Sam. You used to eat donuts with Sam. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because right, Sam? For sure, for sure. <laughs> He's a man of few words, huh? Oh. Nope. Oh, uh, oh, boy, Sam. Since it, the questions you have were from uh, the ladies, mm-hmm. um, interesting. Uh, I told you guys I have a, a ride share. That yeah. I found oh, on that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So, um, Dylan, who's. Uh, explain, explain where you're going. Okay, so, yeah, of course. So, I have a friend named Dylan who lives up in Oregon, and I am a student currently. I'm a university student, so. Um, I am on spring break, so I thought, why not go up to Oregon and enjoy myself? Well, you know, I didn't have a ride. It's kind of far. It's about a six-hour drive to Medford, where he's at. And uh, I didn't know what to do, so he said, do rideshare. So I was like, all right, cool. I go on to my app, try to download rideshare. <laughs> no app. It's this Craigslist. So you just type in rides to Oregon, and they pop up. And Dylan's like, yeah, do it. It's fine. And I'm a little worried. You know, I can, uh, yeah, I do a lot of things that other people might not, you know, find safe. But at the same time, I find that to be pretty dangerous, you know, just hopping in a car. But I found a 47-year-old woman in a convertible to drive up. That sounds really safe. So I, I you never know, though. Yeah, you never you really, know. that could be a ruse. What's a ruse? A ruse is like a lie. A lie, like a plan, like a, a plot. It's a plot to lie. A ruse is like something that's trick. Yeah, to trick someone. You should be on Snapchat the entire like ride share experience, just so like so people know if it yeah, goes back. Yeah, if I'm dead. Right. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, I thought about that. I thought like if I die, like, I mean, how would she get me? <laughs> how would she kill me? I don't know. Will the top be down or? No. That's a very specific. I, that's not, that's like that's like almost too safe to be. You know what I mean? Like when that, you said that will exact, top be down, I I didn't know that you meant convertible. I immediately yeah. thought you were talking about a blowjob. A blowjob. Will top be well, down? Okay, so Dylan called, right? Right. So Dylan, uh, Dylan, uh, my our friend that I'm going to visit, he first called the number on Craigslist, and she picked up, and then blah blah blah. Now he calls me after he called her and said, "Dude, I have the number. I just called her. She sounds hot." And I'm like, uh, "Oh, Dylan called the girl." Yeah, he called the girl. Called the ride person. Yeah, the ride because I. She's a woman. She's 47. Yeah, I called. I called the number and I got the wrong number. Like I called the wrong number. I just put it in like an idiot, so I never got to. Um, actually talked to her, but Dylan talked to her, and then I called her after he talked to her. She starts talking to me. She sounds like a middle-aged woman. I don't know what Dylan was talking about. She sounds like a middle-aged woman, and she's like, you. She starts making small talk with me and jokes and whatnot. And I, uh, I get on, and I'm like, on the phone, and I'm like, uh, 
yeah, yeah, this is kind of crazy. And she's like, yeah, the last guy I talked to sounded 150 years old. You sound so much younger. And I'm like, thinking it's like Dylan. Immediately, like, she sounded, she just called Dylan like an old creep on the phone. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> but I won't tell Dylan him that. He does kind of sound like an old creepy dude uh, on the phone. Yeah, when he gets on the phone, he'd be like, uh, what's up? <laughs> but I'm nervous. I mean, how many people die a year from this sort of thing? Like ride shares and Craigslist? People used to hitchhike all the fucking time. All the know? time. Yeah, well, I have a germ. The Zodiac killer, I'm pretty sure everyone usually made it. Yeah, it, it's like a few incident, like incidents that have happened where people just stop. Like... It's taboo now to like pick up a hitchhiker. But, like I have a I have a German professor who was talking about it. And he's like, you know, you know, in the times in Germany, just everyone would hitchhike. No one would still hitchhike like yeah. other parts of the world. Oh yeah, I other have, parts of the country too. Yeah. I have a dope ass memory with my dad in Scotland, and this guy taking us on a ride, offering a ride. We met him at a hotel, and he had a big van with like seats in the back. And he's like, I'm just I just woke up one day and said, fuck it, I'm gonna go see Scotland. So instead of paying for our flight. This guy took us around all of Scotland in this van, which, if you act, if you want to know, isn't very long since Scotland. So it was only about eight hours, nine hours of driving. But we picked up people along the way, and like after about five, hours, four or five hours, we had about eight people in this car in the van, and there were people from Poland, and they had instruments, and like it was crazy. I never experienced anything like it, but that was like a true hitchhiking experience. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool and special. I hitchhiked in Santa Cruz once with my dad how was that it was fine this guy we were just like looking for the boardwalk and we couldn't find it and this guy just gave us a ride yeah the the other day uh i, I was in the rain dude, and i was getting soaked on my way to class i live about 20 30 minutes from class from one of my classes so i was walking in the rain and this dude and i could tell he went to my school because he had the pass slows down i've never seen him in my life and offers me a ride and i turned him down as like it was instinct i turned him down and immediately after turning him down i'm like why would I turn him down? I w I'm getting soaked. This guy clearly goes to my school. Like, I just turned down a ride, and that's what I was thinking today when I made so the decision. So you didn't? I didn't, get, I didn't, didn't take the ride because I felt like I, I, it wasn't even fear. It was like logic in a way. That right. I was like, as if I was thinking like not taking this ride was, was logical. Violence is wrong abroad. <laughs> it is wrong to defend. <laughs> Because people are scared of each other nowadays. They don't trust anybody. I don't even think it's that. I think it's just scared of what, like, you're not scared of people so much. I think you're just scared of what might happen to you. Like, I, is that different? People are just self-conscious these days. Yeah. Am I, am I too loud? No, you're good. Because when I talk like this, I'm good. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just, just do like that. You're doing good. Cool. Um, cool. So. Hi, Ellie. Hey, Ellie. Ellie just walked in. She's here. She's here. You should come in. Yeah, I, I do think that like rideshare should be more of a thing. That's like, like there should be like an app called rideshare. You know what I mean? Because it's just super convenient. You just hop in a random person's car and go from point A to point B. Is there not an app called rideshare? No, they have apps. But you know what I think? I think they just need to get like better public transport. If like, like think about you know the train they're building. Instead no. of the instead of taking the five to get to LA, you can take a speed train. So they're building they're building that right now. It's like a billion dollar project in California. You guys never heard of that? I heard about it. Yeah, so yeah. like they have a they have a stop. They have a stop in uh, Sonoma. They have a, they have a stop in Sonoma and uh, it's going to be huge. And so you can take that train. Let's say you're by my uh, school where I live. You take that train, it only takes you 3 hours to get to LA less. 2 to 3 hours. 
That's awesome. And yeah, I think if you had better public transportation. Wait, I don't understand. Two, three hours from where? From like, like okay, so let's say you're in Ronner Park, the city. You can get to LA in three hours. In two to three hours, because they're building the bullet trains. So really? when they, yeah, they yeah. they need to do that, because in Europe, that's huge, and you don't need to. So like, that gets rid of the like, ride shares and stuff like that. And like, everyone has their own car, so that's already given a like get gotten rid of the culture of sharing rides and hitchhiking. So that's it's created a taboo, and then so, now the new trains and the public transportation is going to create like so, that culture extinct. So how how fast does the bullet train go? As fast as a bullet. Do you think that do you think that sex on a bullet train would be more exhilarating than sex on a regular train? I've been on a bullet train in France. Um, same, just you can't really look outside, and that's my favorite part. So I don't really like. Black Black Plastic MutinyRadio.fm
and blew my mind, and I liked it. But then, I, you know, I threw up the other nostril, not the nostril, and my, my head blew. We say ride the pink horse down Night Me Alley.
gonna make you my pretty baby But then I don't want to show it I'm loving you all the time, little lady I just want you to know that